y'all know who this is? So if you see me at a coffee shop and I got my headphones on, I'm like really into it, and you don't want to bother me, this is what I'm listening to. You can just bring it down a little bit. Can we put the slide up there? Thanks, slide. Bring it down. Bring it down, Aaron. Bring it down. Bring it down. Bring it down so they can hear. Some of you already know, this is a love supreme. John Coltrane. In his liner notes, this is what he wrote. Bring it down a little bit more. Just a little bit more. So, dear listener, all praise be to God to whom all praise is due. During the year 1957, I experienced by the grace of God a spiritual awakening, which was to lead me to a richer, fuller, more productive life. At that time, in gratitude, I humbly asked to be given the means and privilege to make others happy through my music. And I feel this has been granted through His grace. All praise to God. The story's told that one day he played this, and he played the best solo that he had ever played. And, and the story goes that he got down from the stage where, wherever he was playing, and he uttered the first two words in Latin that's found in Luke chapter 2. You could go ahead and turn it off now. Where Simeon says, literally, I can go now. Simeon, Luke chapter 2, looks at the Savior, the Messiah, and says, I have seen, I have done I have been here for the thing that God has called me to do, and, and, and I can go now. And John Coltrane apparently walked down and said those words, I can go now. He had this incredible sense, conviction, that some of us long for, which is he was able to go, I know why God put me on earth. God put me on earth to play a certain amount of music, to reach a certain amount of people through the music, and through my gifts and abilities, accomplish certain kinds of things. And he was able to go, I've done it. I've done it. Just think about that for a moment. Think about what it takes for a person to have this sense of clear call on your life that you're able to say. Not because he's an evangelist, a missionary, a preacher. And I need to stress that. Not because he was doing quote-unquote spiritual work. Through the calling as a musician, the best saxophone player he could possibly be, he was able to, in his heart, fulfill the mission that God had called him so that he could walk away going, I've done all I needed to do. That's powerful, yes? It's huge. I mean, that's what we've been talking about. The Bible says you and I are like fingerprints or like snowflakes that God has created us and gifted us and instilled within us unique gifts, abilities, talents, and he has placed us on earth to serve people, to serve the world, to serve the common humanity. And God places us with these passions and gifts and abilities so that, this is what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Why do you read that just as doing spiritual work, Bible study, teaching? When God says, I've created you. To do good works. I think Coltrane had it right. He says, the good works is, for him as a musician, it's fulfilling this call on my life to be the 
best musician I could possibly be to bring joy to people's heart. Do you, do you have that conviction about what you do? Your job. We've all been placed on earth, you guys, with a vocation, a calling, a job. Small number of us, and I'll get to this, tiny percentage of us will be called into, quote-unquote, ministry. Evangelist, missionary, pastor. Vast majority of us are called to be all these other things. And, 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 and the sense of call gives us a sense of mission. I tell you, if you know this about you, you don't have to wonder, get up in the morning going, do I have a mission? You know you're on a mission, man. And you go to work. And your primary emphasis is not, oh, how do I share Jesus with somebody? Your primary emphasis is not, how do I sneak in a Bible? Your emphasis is, I'm going to do this job to the best of my ability because that brings glory to God and his work is accomplished. Amen? That's hard for some of us to wrap our brain around, isn't it? That's why we've gone all the way back to Genesis, and we've covered some unbelievable truths. Somebody told me last week that I was really heavy on review, so I'm going to spend two minutes on review and move on today, okay? Some of you nodding your head like, yes, you were heavy on review. But this is so important. Can I just ask, has this been sort of a paradigm shifting, my favorite word, for some of you about work and jobs? Anybody? Yes? Because many of us grew up with this sort of dualistic vision of what's really important work and what work is, you know, spiritual and, and all this other stuff. And, and, and what we see in Genesis, number one, number one, God is a worker. Hello? God is a ditch digger. God is a gardener. God has dirt on his hands. God loves work. All kinds of work. Look, if God is a ditch digger and God is a gardener, is it more spiritual to be a pastor than to be a ditch digger or a gardener? Answer, no. God loves work, all kinds of work. Not only that, but God gives work to mankind. <laughs> Before sin, there is work. Before sin enters the world, God gives us work to do. In a perfect world, God gives us work to do. So where do we get this notion that work is a result of sin? What sin has done is it is skewed our perspective of work, which we'll talk about. But God gives us work, and God goes, all work, I love it. All work is ordained, called by me. All work. And God says, get to work. And we saw last week this incredible truth, that all work is participation in God's work. God the Spirit is sustaining and caring for all of creation, and the way that God meets the needs of the world, God needs the needs of humanity, God needs you and I, our needs, and cares for us, sustains us through how? Through our work. <laughs> our work. Martin Luther had the audacity to go, when that milkmaid is milking the cow to give milk to people, that's God milking the cow. When the farmer farms, God could feed you and I through uncommon supernatural means, send manna from heaven. He did that once. But how does God feed humanity? How? Through the farmer that farms. How does God teach? Through teachers. How does God heal? Through doctors, nurses, medical professionals. How does God preach? Through preachers, God uses people, human beings, and their jobs and vocations to love his creation. Is that good news? Man, that gives, I tell you, I've gotten some really emotional emails from teachers throughout this service because teachers are going, you're finally reminding me why I entered this thing. 
I went into teaching, Peter, because I wanted to make a difference in the world. I didn't go into teaching so that I could, you know, pull that student over and go, do you know Jesus? I wanted to teach so I could bring out the potential in that child and for God to do amazing things in his or her life. (sighs) I've also gotten some emails from folks who work at bike shops. Bike shops. Bike shops. Just fixing motorcycles. And it's a renewed sense of, yeah, this is why I do what I do. This is a way of I, me serving and loving the world. Okay, so what we're going today is, is that, was that quick enough? That's like two minutes. So what we're going today is, is for me one of the most important things. Um, Miroslav Wolf, one of my favorite authors, said this. He says, our perspective of, he puts it in quote, secular work will be dependent upon our view of creation. And our view of creation will be dependent on what we think is the destiny for creation. Now, here's what he was saying. What you and I perceive this world to be will be very much dictated by what we think will happen to the end of this world, right? And what we think of end of this world, how this whole world deal is going to end, is going to impact your everyday right now in your jobs. Do you know what's going to happen at the end of this world? Some of us grew up with this mentality, what? There's going to be rapture. We're going to be whisked from earth. What's going to happen to earth? Material creation. It's going to burn. It's going to, ah, who knows? Who cares? We're going, to be ra- we're going to be raptured to heaven. We're going to be with God. Do you know if you actually read the Bible, you know the Bible? It doesn't say that. You know what the Bible says? Revelation 21. Oh, this is this amazing, amazing passage. Revelation 20. Here's the end of the world, right? And then I saw a new heaven and new earth. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. He who was seated on the throne said, I am, say this with me, I am making everything new. You know what the end of this world is going to be? End of this world is not you and I being raptured to heaven somewhere and living some ethereal spiritual life. God says, All of creation, material creation that he loves, is going to be renewed and restored. Why is that important? Do you think it's more important to be a, do you think it's more important to be an evangelist than it is to be a musician? You'll think to be an evangelist is more important than a musician if you think the end of this world is, well, let's go to heaven. Let's just say, let's save as many souls as possible we can go to heaven. But if the end of the world is God recreating this material world, you know what a job of an evangelist is? This is going to freak some of you out. The job of an evangelist is to prepare a world where artists and musicians could do their work perfectly. Can I say that again? <laughs> if you're an evangelist, your job is temporary. Are we going to need evangelists when God recreates the whole world? No! There's going to be no need for evangelists. There's going to be no need for pastors. There's going to be no need for missionaries. Do you know what our job is? Missionary, pastor, evangelist. Our job is to help create a world with God where artists, investors, teachers could do their jobs perfectly. And all of God's people said, what are you talking about? (laughs) If God is recreating the whole world, and, and there is job and work in perfection. There's going to be job and work in perfection when God recreates everything. Amen? Some of us are going to need job training in heaven. 
Someone, I'm, I'm not going to be a pastor in heaven anymore. Hello? We are going to know God perfectly. I'm not gonna, you're not going to need pastors and evangelists. I'm going to need job training. But if you're a gardener, if you're an investor, if you're an artist, your job is going to be for all of eternity. So some of us are going to need job training. Now, why is that huge? Because think about it. Think about it. That that gives us perspective about our work right now. How can we possibly think it's more spiritual to be a pastor, evangelist, and missionary when God says all work is a vocation and all work is a calling from God? All of us are ministers. Some of us in our role right now is to participate along with the Holy Spirit in bringing about a world in which some of these jobs can be done perfectly. Now, if you have a hard time wrapping your brain around, I'm going to talk about that more in a couple of weeks. But just sit on that for a bit. Just sit on that for a bit. Just sit on that for a bit. All right. Open your Bibles with me to Titus. Today we're going to talk about just work, okay? That's the title of the sermon. And just work is not, look, just work. Just work. And I'll talk about what just means in a moment. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. This, in this passage, Paul more than any other passage in the New Testament, you guys, talks about this thing that we're talking about right now, about how our perspective of the future, our perspective of what awaits us, our perspective that there is a new material, restored world creation coming affects our present day life right now. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Paul says here, all of us Christians, we're waiting for the blessed hope, which is his way of saying the second coming of Christ, the return of our King. And, and, and here's what he says. He says, what that does, and this is so huge. He says, what that does, people that are expecting the return of Christ, return of the blessed hope, it creates people who are eager to do what is good. It creates people who are passionate about doing what is good. In verse 12, it says, what they do is it, it makes them passionate about living upright, godly lives in this present age. Do you guys remember a dude named Harold Camping? Good. I'm glad you remember him. He's the guy that about a couple years ago came and said, the end of the world is coming, October 29th or something like the 2011. Do you remember that? And he got so much media attention, right? So much media attention around this. The end of the world, October 2011. Like, here's the amazing thing. Whenever people talk about the end times and so on and so forth, there are inevitably a number of Christians who do what? They'll be on the street corner holding up a sign, the end of this near. You know what I'm talking about? Like, that's what it does to people, we think. When Jesus Christ is coming soon, end is near, and they never shave, they never bathe. I don't know what that's all about, right? It's the same guy. People do what? Leave their jobs. Thousands left their jobs to go and wait and prepare for the return of the Lord. You and I go, there's something off about that. What it, what's off about that is what the Bible says. The Bible says, that Christians who wait the return, by the way, how many of us are waiting for the return of the king? <laughs> two people. <laughs> I'll tell you why there's only two people who are like, yes, the return of the king. Great movie, by the way, yes? 
I tell you, the Bible talks about the return of the king, second coming of Christ, over 300 times in the New Testament. Did you know that? One out of every 13 verses talks about it. So for those of you going, well, I grew up in church where they talked about that, and I don't think that's very found very frequently. No, it's found a lot. But here's the thing. Whenever the Bible talks about the second coming of the king, it never talks about it so you and I could speculate on when that is. It's never talked about so we can go, October, by the way, that guy Harold Camping, he apparently predicted March 1994. didn't happen. Then he predicted May 1995. It didn't happen. And then he predicted again 2011. And people were like, it's happening again. I'm going, not only that, but do you remember Jesus himself said what? I don't know. Jesus himself said, I don't know. And it's never called to speak out. Whenever the Bible, though, talks about the second coming, the whole point of bringing it up is always to get you and I, listen, is to be passionate about living now, passionate about our lives here. What do I mean? Cornelius Platinga, a philosopher, scholar, theologian, in his book, Engaging God's World, said, the second coming is good news for people whose lives are filled with bad news. If you're a slave in Egypt, or if you're a slave in 19th century America, if you're an exile in Babylon, or if you're a Kosovar, a Kosovar exiled in Albania, if you, are, if you are a woman who lives in a culture where if your husband is mad at you, he could lock you up, or he could get his buddies to come and rape you, and there will be no consequences. If you are a Christian living in sub-Saharan Africa where AIDS is devastating populations, if you are those people, when you hear about the return of the king, you don't yawn. You don't just go, it's for them good news for people whose lives are filled with injustice suffering disease and death it is good news why because the coming of the kingdom depends on the coming of the king and when the king returns the bible says justice will fill the earth the hands of the king are healing hands Let me put it this way. This is the sermon point. Passionate Christians want the return of the king, and so they become compassionate people. Say this with me. Passionate Christians want the return of the king, and so become compassionate people. Why? Because if you long for the return of the king, you long for the return of the conditions that will accompany that king's appearing. And the Bible says that two things are going to happen when the king returns. One, everybody will know him. Everybody will see him. Everybody will know truth. And it will be the end finally when he returns of suffering, disease, death, injustice, and evil. And so passionate Christians who long for the return of the king, saying, come Lord, come Lord, are not just passionate people, but they become compassionate because they want to do the same thing that will happen when the king returns. Amen? That's why people who anticipate the return of the king and Trevor and maybe one other person like, we're looking forward to his return. That's because you and I are too comfortable. We live in America. Our lives are safe. 
truth be told, some of us are sitting here going, I don't want him to come back right now. Because I'm not married yet. <laughs> Let me get married first. And then ha- <sighs> the Bible says, if you long for the return of the king and you know if you know that when he returns, every eye will see him, every eye will see truth, and the world will be rid of disease, death, injustice, and evil once and for all, it makes you not just passionate, but eager, the Bible says, to do good. Because you long for that world that is to come. Oh. And verse 12 says that it makes people who live upright lives. And just brief Bible study real quick, you guys. In the Greek word, the upright word Greek, for upright is dikaios, which means justice. And when you and I think of just, and this is a sermon title, so pay attention. When you and I think of just, justice or just life, many of us, we have this, no, let me put it this way. The Bible uses the word just and the word righteous in the same manner, just and righteous. Now, when we think of the word righteous, for many of us who grew up in church, we think of what? We think of private personal morality, right? A righteous person is someone who doesn't sleep around, someone who doesn't lie, someone who goes to church. Someone. But righteousness or justice in the Bible, oh my gosh. If you and I think it's just about personal morality, we're missing vast sections of the Bible. Bruce Walkie, Bruce Walkie, a Bible theologian scholar, said this about what just means. He said that in the Bible, the just are those who are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community, and the unjust are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. Listen very carefully. The word just in the Bible is not about personal morality. So unrighteousness is not about adultery and stealing and lying. Unrighteousness in the Bible. Here's how the author of Proverbs says, Proverbs chapter Proverbs chapter 3, verse 27. Do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it is in your power to act. Do not say to your neighbor, come back later. I'll give it to you tomorrow when you have it with you. A just person, a just person is someone who lives in constant recognition, awareness of the human, of the human community around you. A just person who is looking and sensing and saying, what are the needs of the world? What are the needs of the human community? And living in awareness and doing something about it. That means you are unrighteous if you have food to give to the poor and you don't. That means you and I are unrighteous if we live so above our means that we can't be generous with those who are in need. Unrighteousness. It's not about personal morality. Unrighteousness is this failure to recognize the needs of the human community around us. Unrighteousness. And what the Bible says is that if you long for the return of the king, you live an upright life, which means you live a just life. Live in constant sense, recognize, feeling the claims of the human community around you. And just person, look, a just person sees all of his resources, not mine, but resources is how do I share this with the world around me? A just person, just person sees their resources belong to the human community. Whereas a wicked person, someone, someone who says, this is all mine. And Paul's saying here that someone who lives with an awareness of the return of the king, awareness of the blessed hope, makes you just. He actually talks about that as he goes on. Look at Titus chapter 3 verse 1. So he says, remind the people then to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be, listen to this, to be ready to do, again, there it is, whatever is good. To slander no one, to be peaceable, considerate, to show true humility towards all men. Just see, 
Over and over in the Bible says, if you long for the return of the king, it makes you a just person, a righteous person. And a just person, righteous person is someone who's saying, what can I do for the common good? What can I do to serve the human community? What can I do? What would be, listen to this, what would be best? What would be best for the entire city of Chicago? What would be best for the entire city of Chicago? Not just me, but the entire city of Chicago. And a just righteous person who lives with an awareness of the coming king says, that's what I'm going to do. So it's, we make this public schools better. We make sure that there's health care and affordable housing available to everybody. We get, in political, we get involved in political causes that advance, not just a small sliver group of people, but serve everybody. We choose to live a lower lifestyle so we would have more to give. Righteousness. Justice. The return of the king and an awareness of that makes you righteous and, and just. The gospel is not just about private morality. It's not about private life. But the gospel affects our public life and how we live and interact with the world out there. Are you getting that? See, this is the reason why, and it's part of my fault, we don't talk enough about the return of the king. We need to talk about it more often. And I know, I'll be honest, for me, it's a lot of my hang-up from my olden days, you know, because I grew up in the church culture. It was rapture, and we go to heaven, and the world's going to burn. Who cares what happens? We just need to save as many souls. And my theology has come full circle. And I should live with an everyday awareness of going, come, Lord Jesus. Come, king. Come, O king. Return of the king. I can't wait. Because everybody will then know you and know your truth and will see you for who you are. And the entire world will be healed and restored. Now, here's the thing. So they're going, okay, we're talking about work, Peter, vocation, jobs. What does that have to do with? Okay, so here it is. Ready? So the return of the king affects our public life, not just our personal morality, public life. And the main area in our public lives we've been talking about that we spend the most of our time is what? Is work. It's our jobs. It's our jobs. So how does the return of the king affect our jobs and our work? How does the gospel affect what we do out there? Let me ask you guys something. How many of you guys before the sermon series or even in the sermon series pretty much kind of sealed off your work from your Christian life? You know, like I'm a Christian on weekends and then Monday through Friday I do my thing at work. Can we just be honest? How many of you guys? Raise your hands. Hi. Hi. Oh, there's like three of you? Really? Really? Okay. So most of us, we just go, Christian life, you know, it's thing on weekends I do thing, and then work. Well, work, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means uh, I don't do anything illegal. I don't lie. I don't cheat. I don't treat my workers not too bad, and I just got to do my thing. Here's the problem. The problem. If Jesus is king, if he is Lord, he is Lord of every aspect of our lives. Amen? Every sphere of our lives. We don't compartmentalize. We don't compartmentalize church life, private life, morality. And then we go work life, public life. No, Jesus Christ is Lord of every life. Every area of our lives. Every area, including our public life. And this is what the Bible says over and over again. Passages like Corinthians. uh, uh, What passage is this? Christ needs to be preeminent over every part of your life. Colossians 1.18, we looked at that. And 1 Corinthians 10.31, everything is to be done for the glory of God. Now, let me just say something right here. Whenever I talk about this and we talk about work, this room is going to be separated into kind of like two groups of people. There's a group of people, let's just be honest, we're very religious, very legalistic. 
And when we talk about what does it mean to be a Christian at work, we go, tell me the rules. Tell me the specific how. You know what I'm talking about? What does it mean? Tell me the specific how. The thing is, the Bible doesn't tell you specific how. The Bible doesn't go, if you are an artist, here are the things that you can do, and here are things. It doesn't. It doesn't. If you're in business, here are the things. There's no specifics. You know what the Bible does? The Bible gives us trajectories and guidelines about what it means to be Jesus Christ, Lord, what it means to have the gospel embedded in our hearts. It doesn't give you specifics. Uh, there's a baker in our church. Does the Bible say anything about here's how a Christian ought to bake? Well, okay, you bake well. Is there, is there a Christian way to bake bread? Answer? No, but that's what we think. We go specifically, we go, give me specifics about how to, you know, how do, I, do I like bake it in the shape of a fish, you know, or do I bake it, you know, what do I do? Oh, this, the Bible doesn't, and yet that's what you and I want. We want rules. We want specifics. What does it mean to be a Christian? Here's the thing. There's no Christian way to bake bread. There's no Christian. But if you're a Christian baker, You'll treat your employers differently. Your price points will be different. You'll treat your customers differently. Okay, more examples. Christians who are in business. What does it mean for me to be a Christian? In the financial world, there are these financial instruments that are sometimes used in exploitive ways. Our entire financial meltdown that happened was people who knew that what they were doing and the instruments they were using we're not just illegal, but we're immoral. And I'm sitting here going, out of the hundreds and thousands of people in that industry, was there not a Christian who said, this isn't Jesus Christ being Lord? Christian sitting there going, if you're a Christian, you're going, my job, I need to share Jesus with this person. I need to do a Bible study. And Jesus Christ isn't preeminent over area, every area of your life. What do you do? You go, I don't want to think about that. Exploitive, I don't want to think. The Bible says you have to think about it. You have to think about it. Can I give you a couple more examples? We have a bunch of people in our church who are in advertising. Do you know what this means to be a Christian? Sometimes some of the ads and promotions that we do, do you realize they advance cultural idolatry? There's some ads and promotions that basically get to cultural idols that basically feed on the whole, I'm not as beautiful as that girl, so there must be. I, what does it mean to be a Christian in advertising? It's not, do you know Jesus? Let's pray together. Do Bibles. It's asking the question, is my work advancing cultural idols that are devastating to the human soul? Are you following me? Can I give some more examples? I get artists, actors in our church who are going, Pastor Peter, can I do this thing? You know, there's swear words in this. I'm going, you're being religious. You're asking specifics. Question you need to ask is, does the gospel have deeply embedded effect in my heart so that acting in what I do is not my identity significance, Jesus Christ is? And secondly, is Jesus Christ preeminent over every area of my life? Those are the questions you need to be asking. So what does it mean? For you to be a teacher and have Jesus Christ preeminent over your occupation teacher. It's not just share the gospel. Do you know Jesus? It's asking the question, how do I do my work in such a way that Jesus Christ is Lord? Does this make sense? Hmm. Ask yourself the question, is Jesus Christ preeminent?
preeminent Lord in my field, in my workplace, in my jobs. You don't get specifics as a Christian. You get trajectories. You get guidelines. And religious people, we hate that. Black and white. I want the rules. I want the specifics. The Bible says it doesn't. It says two things. It's Jesus Christ, Lord, and is the gospel central to your heart. So what are the trajectories that the Bible gives? There's three, and we're going to look at them, starting at verse 3. I'm going to read all the way to verse 8, and then we'll look at them. Verse 3, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. And all of God's people said, (laughs) <laughs> let's not just go, nom, 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 nom. He saved us not because of anything we do, but because of his mercy. And all of us said, amen. That's good news. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by grace, and all of God's people said, yes, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote, again, here it is, devote themselves to doing what is good. So, if you're a Christian and you're working, vocation job, artist, janitor, mom, teacher, you sweep the streets of Chicago, you're a garbage uh, uh, picker, you work in an auto mechanic shop, you're a doctor, lawyer, no matter what it is that you do, what do we find out about how it affects our work, our public life, we live in awareness of the king. Three areas. One is motivation. Why do you do the job that you do? Why do you take the job that you take? Do you ever ask yourself honestly that? Some of you in med school. Why do you want to be a doctor? Why do you want to be a teacher? Why do you want to be a lawyer? Why? Some of us, we flat out go, I just want to make money. Some of us go, and I find this in our generation, I just want to do the, something that's emotionally fulfilling. And people that are doing it because it's emotionally fulfilling totally are self-righteously looking down at people who just do it for money. Like, you're such a sellout. And people who are doing it for money totally look down at the people who are emotionally, you're such a loser. We're all being self-righteous towards each other, right? And here's the question. Why do you work? You know what the Bible says? Do you know what the Bible says about why you should work? Three times it says what? Do it for the common good. Do it for the common good. Do it for the common good. The main reason why Christians ought to work and have jobs is because it helps the human community. The main reason why you and I work is not to make money. It's not because it's emotionally fulfilling, although those are extra bonuses, but we do it to serve the common community. We do it because we're concerned about the common good. The problem is none of us these days, very few of us, do it for those reasons. You know what I hear a lot? Why do you work? I work. So that I can make money to do what I really want to do. I work so that I can make a living to do what I really want to do. That's why I hear people like, it's just a job. It's just a job. <laughs> My favorite. Oh, it pays the bills. <laughs> Look, I'm not saying those are wrong reasons for looking at working at a job. But the Bible says the reason why you work is not for money. It's not for status. It's not because it pays bills, but serve the common good. Some people go into the medical profession, and my wife is a doctor, so we talk about this a lot. Not for the sake of bringing healing to patients and people who are sick. That's a good byproduct. People go into medical profession, not everybody, some, so they can make a nice living and live a certain lifestyle. 
Lawyers don't go into law anymore for justice sake. They go what? So they can make a certain amount of money and live a certain lifestyle. It's about money. It's about status. And the Bible says, why do you work? Be honest. Ask yourself, why do you work? Why do you want that job? Why do you want that particular job? Is it to serve the human community? Is it for the flourishing of the human community? Or is it so I can make a living to do what I really want to do? Does anybody work for the sake of that work anymore? (laughs) This is so important for Christians, man. By the way, some jobs produce things that nobody wants. And you should stay away from those jobs. Professional spammers, you need to quit your job. (laughs) I'm looking. Anybody looking down? It's me. (laughs) There's some things, but here's the more. Very few of us are involved in work. Uh, where it, it doesn't help anybody, it, it, if any, it does more evil and all that stuff. And there are very few. And if you are, come talk to me after the service. I'm going to give you career counseling, okay? Um, but for most of us, you know what our question, most of us are like, Peter, when you talk about human flourishing, man, I'm not like in the inner city building houses, and I'm not, I'm not, why do I? The question we need to ask is, in the current situation that God has given me, am I, am I, am I in a situation where to the best of my ability, emotionally, spiritually, physically, in every other way, I'm helping the community around me flourish. And if it's not, if it's not that, and you can't answer that honestly, they need to take a step back and go, in, then why am I in this job? Is it for the money? Is it for the lifestyle? Is it for status? You know what? I love this email that I got. By the way, I've been getting tons of emails, and I'll keep them coming. Keep them coming, okay? Because I love sharing this with you guys. I got this from a mom in our church. And my whole fear in this sermon series was, oh, I hope the moms in our church whose job is to be a mom will not feel like dissed. So they're going, you're talking about these jobs. I can't relate. But man, uh, Christy, and she gave me permission to, uh, Christy, as you know, is a mom of two beautiful children who clearly, clearly, thank the Lord, took after their mom and not their daddy. That's, that's just me. I can say that because he's not here. Tim is not here. Oh, anyway. This is what she said. This was after the first sermon, you know, when I talked about dignity, intrinsic value in our work. Single. She says, hi, hi, Pastor Peter. She said, you should know that I'm typing this with blue fingers due to an evening filled with marker coloring with the kids. It occurred to me today, just today, yes, that I do indeed have the best job in the world. Here's how I know. Stacked against what you refer to as every college student's wish list for their dream job. Here's how, remember I told you, like every college student I talked to, they go, I just want four things. That's it. Just four things in my job. What is it? I want to make a lot of money, okay? Secondly, I want to do something that's fulfilling to me, okay? Third, I want to change the world. And fourth, I want to do it for like the next 40 years and enjoy it more and more as I go. And I look at the college and I go, good luck. <laughs> so here's what, here's what Christy did. She went through all the points and she goes, this is why I have the best job. She says, Peter, Pastor Peter, she says, a job that you can grow into and do better and, and know more than when you first started. She says, when we first said Kayla, as her oldest, we knew little about this whole parenting thing despite the classes and other babies we previously encountered. By the way, just because you watch other kids doesn't make you fit for being a parent, okay? <laughs> it's a different, parents, can I get an amen? Amen. It's a different animal, people, right? Anyway, I'm so ready. Why? Because I babysit like one day a week. What? The first two nights Kayla was home with us are the only two nights I could think of since I've known Tim 
that he was so frustrated and felt so helpless that he could hardly talk. I just, I just imagine that big burly Tim just walking around. <laughs> All that time and excitement, anticipation, waiting for a baby, and then she arrives and there's little to be done to console her. Over time, we learn what to do, her patterns, timing things right, anticipating her needs, of course. Then she started talking, and then BJ, second one, came along. And oh, how we wish the only challenge was figuring out why on earth he was crying again. Even now, we don't always get it right. We're always forever continuing to learn about how to properly parent our children. It's constantly changing, always forcing us to grow, even in ways we couldn't have imagined. And thankfully, along the way, we've picked up a lot of tricks of the trade, mostly from trial and error, and we know way more than when we first started. Third, she says, a job that changes or has some impact in the world. Well, clearly, this speaks for itself. Kayla will be the first woman president of the United States. (laughs) And BJ will be the world's best drummer and figure out a cure for cancer. She says, yes, we all have grand dreams for our children. Whether or not they achieve them matters little. How we raise them and what perspective we give them on the world will indeed have an impact on our society, whether big or small. They will change lives. It's our constant prayer. It is for the better. Third, a job that is fun and also challenging. She says, with this job, I could spend all day at the park with my kids, sometimes against my better judgment. I do. The challenges are such that I could fill up an entire book if only I could stay awake to write it. Don't get me started on the, don't get me started on the times I want to pull my hair out. It's a constant test of my patience and requires learning new skills for each developing stage they enter. And lastly, she goes, a job that pays well? All right. So this is indeed the tricky one. We don't get paid a penny. But there's no proper or fitting amount for 12 hours of labor followed by 12 hours of being on call. We accept no pay, none at all. And yet, I conclude, I have the best job. She gets it. She gets it. Motivation for why you work. (laughs) I don't know why I got emotional. I'm going to go home and my wife is going to be like, you have no idea what it's like to be a mom. Why'd you get emotional up there? (laughs) I save you, Jenny. You don't have to tell me, all right? I confess it for the whole church. I don't. I don't know why I got emotional. <laughs> you see my wife going back there going, he had no clue what he's talking about. <laughs> Secondly, proportion. Proportion. It says, verse 3, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. And the word here, the word here, I should say, of passions and pleasures is the word epithumia, which we get inordinate desires. And I talk about this a lot. Basically, what Paul is saying there is, there's an, uh, uh, there's an inordinate desire, an overdrive, a lusting for, an addiction to, finding an ultimate in, in the context of what he's saying. Here's essentially what he's saying. For some of you, for some of us, me, work isn't just work. It's our identity. It's our significance. Work is not just something that we do. It's something that gives us life something that gives us meaning in life. It's our ultimate. It's not just a good thing. It's our ultimate thing. Why can't you stop working? Why can't you rest? I talked about this last week. I talked to two people. One person came up honestly and said, Pastor Peter, I don't feel like I matter if I'm not accomplishing something. Can anybody relate to that? Like if I'm not accomplishing something, I feel like my life is meaningless. Wow. Wow. 
if I'm not accomplishing something, I feel like, my, think about what this person is saying. And then I had Dan Radakovich, honestly, he came up to me, he goes, you know, my problem, you guys know Dan, he's an attorney in his 60s, he's been around for years. He said, my problem is not I find identity and significance. He's like, I'm over that. I'm like, I hope you are. You're 60 years old. <laughs> You're still finding identity and significance. Whoa. But you know what he said? He goes, Pastor Peter, the reason why I work so hard and I can't rest? Because I fool myself into thinking if I stop working, the world will fall apart. How many of us struggle with that? We're sitting there going, if I stop working, the world will fall apart. It is a bit of a God complex. So I have to stop working because, you know, God is sovereign, powerful, in control. Who spoke the world into being? But if I stop working, then the world will fall apart. If I stop working, then things go haywire. And so we work and we work and we work. Inordinate desire, overdrive desire. We find identity significance and this value of I am doing something. And if that's you, here's how you're going to approach work. It's going to become too important or not too unimportant. What do I mean? If that's your view, that the work is the way you find significance identity, the work gives you significance identity, the work makes a living for you to gain significance identity, work is going to become too important. If you get the job that you want, it's going to consume you, and you're going to give everything you have to it. You're not going to rest. You're going to ruin your health. You're going to ruin your family. You're going to ruin your marriage. You're going to work until you drop. Or it's going to become unimportant. Why? Some of us are in work. We're going, this is not what I was created for. This is not what I was made for. This is not what I want to do. And so what do we do? We slack off. We're lazy. We do terrible work. And we forget what God says. You don't work for that guy you're not going to have in three years. Why work for a guy that you might not have in three years as your boss when you are actually working for somebody you will have as your boss three million years from now? Why are you treating that work like that's your boss when your boss is your father in heaven who says three million years from now, you're still going to be working for me? And I'm telling you, look, if work is your significance, identity, status, and does these things for you, you're going to be completely out of whack. Balance, what's balance? Overwork, overwork, what's overwork? Some of overwork, that's work. What's overwork? Work? Everybody works like that. Overwork. So this idea of Sabbath rest that I'm going to talk about in a couple weeks is so foreign to us. So foreign to us. And what does the Bible say? Paul says the answer is what? Verse 5, he says, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. I'm going to say this over and over and over again until I die. If you do not find your significance, identity, security, approval in Christ, in God, you're going to make work your idol. You're going to make work your significance. You're going to make work the thing that you live for. Has the gospel been so embedded in your heart? Has the gospel been so embedded in your heart that the significance, identity, security, the sense of I need to accomplish something because if I don't, my life is meaningless. Has that voice, the deafening voice that shouts in our ears, has that voice been stilled because you hear the voice of your heavenly father saying to you, you are my beloved in whom I am well pleased. You can rest. You can rest. The world will go on without you. I'm still at work even when you're resting. If the gospel penetrates your heart, you're going to be proportionate in your work. It's going to enable you not to put work ahead of your family, ahead of your health, ahead of relationship. You know what's incredible to me? Can I just say something? There are singles in our church who literally say to me, Pastor Peter, I don't have two hours to set aside a week to spend in community and relationships. 
Think of what that person is saying when they say, my calendar is so full that that thing that gives me life, that gives me soul food, the thing that, the thing that Bible says I need community and relationships, I don't have time for it because I'm so busy. What is that person saying? That person is saying, there's no proportion in my work. Why? Because if I don't work, who am I? What do I do? I've been to a lot of funerals. Have you noticed? Caskets are all the same size. You don't take stuff that you accumulated with you to the next life. You leave everything behind. You know what else I've seen? I've seen people on their deathbeds. And I've said this before. Nobody on their deathbed goes, here's my biggest regret in life. I wish I could have worked more. Nobody says that. I wish I could have made more. But you know what a lot of people say on their deathbed? As they die alone, without family, without children, without wives and husbands. What did I I give my life for? What's more important? Nothing more tragic and sad than seeing somebody who gave his entire life to something that at the end of the day doesn't really matter. The gospel. Third, consolation. Consolation. What do I mean? Pastoring this church has given me both joy <laughs> and the burden of seeing a lot of very highly idealistic young people go, through my job, I want to change the world. And then after two, three years, they get completely disillusioned and go, it stinks. People go, I want to change the world. What I do matters, all this stuff. And then three years. And so where there's this complete lack of balance of what I, so we go from utopia and the world will be perfect to this world is a hellhole and nothing ever good will come out of it. And we shift back and forth. You guys know what I'm talking about? You know, friends that are like that, right? Back and forth, back and forth. And the Bible says, if you know and assured of the return of the king, you have this incredible balance of, I'm going to give my all, but I don't expect perfection to happen. I don't expect every life to be saved. I don't expect all the things to happen. But I know that in the midst of my work, the perfect world will come with the return of the king. So I can give my all and not grow disillusioned, give my all, and not go completely cynical of what is happening around me. Let me put it this way. I heard this story. A pastor tell. J.R. Tolkien told the story of when he was experiencing writer's block. He was writing the Lord, uh, the Lord of the Rings, and he couldn't write. And he experienced this writer block, so he wrote this short story. He wrote this short story. And the story is called Relief by Nigel. And it's about an artist in a small little town. And basically, Carlson, you can come on up. You can come on up. Basically, this artist is paid by the town to go, and we want you to paint a mural on the side of a wall. So he gets paid by this community, this town to paint. And so Nigel goes to work and painting this mural on the side of the wall. And over the course of days, weeks, and months, people are coming by, looking at the side of the mural, going, there's nothing there. And so finally, eventually, what happens is there's a small leaf. He draws a small leaf. And people in town are all upset, like, what the heck is that? We're paying you all this money. We're doing all these things for you to paint this beautiful mural for our town. And he says, look, just give me some time. Just give me some time. And then he dies. He's on a train. He's going to heaven. And he's going to heaven. He's looking around. All of a sudden, to his left, he sees something. And he runs to it. And he's looking out. And what he sees is that mural finished. Beautiful tree. Beautiful leaves 
flourish. And this is what it says. Before him stood the tree. His tree finished. Its leaves opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind. The Nigel so often felt or guessed and had so often failed to catch. He gazed at the tree and slowly he lifted his arms, opened them wide and said, it's a gift. It's a gift. You know what it means? I tell you what this means. There's a city planner in our church. And I talked to him. I, Why'd you go into city planning? He says, I went into city planning so I could see a beautiful city, a beautiful city where people flourish. If you go into city planning, you have to remember that the perfect city, the new Jerusalem, the new city that God creates is still yet to come. But it's there. It's there. And one day, there will be a perfect, beautiful city. If you're a lawyer, you go into law because you want justice. Ten years into it, you realize, I'm just doing minutia. What the heck is this? Where is this justice? You may get one or two cases where you go, I feel alive. You have to remember, you may be able to bang just one leaf in this lifetime, but there's justice coming. You're a teacher. You're pouring, you're pouring, you're pouring, you're pouring, you're pouring. And you're going, am I making any difference? In this world, you may just see one leaf. But there's a coming, a perfect world. You're, you're a doctor working with cancer patients. You're a therapist, and you see patient after patient after patient, and you go, why am I not seeing anybody change? One leaf in this lifetime, a perfect world that is to come. The Bible says that there's deep consolation for Christians because you and I work and work and work in a world where thorns will ultimately grow up, but we don't despair. We don't give up. We don't go, I'm not making a difference. Why? There's a perfect world of justice, love, and truth coming in which king will heal all things is that good news you know what that means that means you and i work with this perspective in this lifetime maybe i'll just get out one leaf but the tree is there the tree is there and god will finish it when he returns i came across this prayer there's a prayer at first i thought it was written by Oscar Romero, who was Archbishop of El Salvador, but apparently it was written by somebody else in honor of Archbishop Oscar Romero. He was assassinated in 1980 while saying Mass in Salvador. And this guy, by the way, worked for justice for that country. And this is a prayer that's dedicated to him. And I thought, there's no more appropriate way to end this sermon than this prayer and this perspective. Picture that in your mind as you go about work this week. One leaf one leaf the tree is there God the tree is there and I want us to pray this together say this together ready it helps now and then to step back and take a long view the kingdom is not only beyond our efforts it's even beyond our vision we accomplish in our lifetime only a tiny fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete, which is a way of saying that the kingdom always lies beyond us. No statement says all that could be said. No prayer fully expresses our faith. No confession brings perfection. No pastoral visit brings wholeness. No program accomplishes the church's mission. No set of goals and objectives includes everything. This is what we are about. We plant the seeds that one day will grow. 
We water seeds already planted, knowing that they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that produces far beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything, and there is a sense of liberation in realizing that. This enables to do something and to do it very well. It may be incomplete, but it is a beginning, a step along the way, an opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter and do the rest. We may never see the end results, but that is the difference between the master builder and the worker. We are workers, not master builders, ministers, not messiahs. We are prophets of your future. 